You are listening to You Are a Lawyer. I'm Kyla Denagno, a 2015 law school graduate. This episode is brought to you by me. (laughs) Seriously, I'm selling merchandise at shopyouarelawyer.com. That's where you can find water bottles, long and short sleeve t-shirts, and everything you need to support the You Are Lawyer podcast. So support your favorite lawyer's favorite podcaster and visit shopyouarelawyer.com to grab some merchandise. In episode 64, I'm speaking with a family mediator and lawyer. This guest ensures that families feel safe and valued through divorce and other legal proceedings. Based in Scotch Plains, New Jersey, today's guest is Nicole Kobus. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, of course, of course. So I've read your bio, I've read your questionnaire, I know a little bit about you, but would you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a family law attorney, so I do divorces, prenuptial agreements, non-dissolution matters. So if people um, have children together, but they were never married, I specialize more so in like mediations and collaborative work. I try to, you know, resolve the disputes amicably, come up with creative settlements. That's kind of, you know, the niche area that I'm trying to steer my practice in. I've been an attorney now for about 10 years. Before going to private practice, I worked for the head of the family division in one of our local counties in the courthouse. I was her clerk for a year and I just fell in love with the practice. And unlike other people, I actually sought out to be in family law and I just directed my career right in that path. And here I am. So I'm glad you made that point because I've heard in law school quite often, don't mess with people's family or their money. Uh And family law tends to be both of those things. It is a very emotional area of law Mm -hmm. to practice in. It is very hard often to deal with the situations that people find themselves in there. It's very difficult to try to take some of the emotion out of it. You know, so my job is, you know, to come in, try to look more at the dollars and cents of the economics of it. And then obviously, first and foremost, have to deal with the child related issues, which are always very, very difficult, very hard, because at the end of the day, you're splitting time with your children. You know, you didn't sign up to be a part time parent. And that's essentially what a lot of people are finding themselves having to, you know, gear themselves towards. Yeah. And on your biography, you actually say that you partner with clients to help them through complex situations. And I love that you say you partner with them, right? You don't just see them as a number or whatever. So I've created my practice in a way that I hope that when people pick up the phone, they know that they're either getting me or they're getting my paralegal. You're not going to have some random person on the other end of the phone. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to listen to your concerns. It doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to agree with what you want. You know, you're paying me to be your lawyer, not your girlfriend. Yeah. And, but oftentimes, you know, I find myself being a little bit of a therapist, trying to sympathize with my clients' concerns, walk them through, you know, uncharted territories, a situation that people don't, you don't get married thinking you're going to get divorced, right? Right. So this isn't something that people, you know, sign up for, but it is a partnership. I get to know you on a deeper level than some of your friends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nothing is more gratifying to me at the end of the day than, you know, being able to stay in touch with my clients. I have clients that'll still send me holiday cards, I have a client this morning, actually, who I posted on her Instagram account that her son had turned 16. And I remember (laughs) when he was barely in elementary school. And so just so nice to see the development and the progression, you know, on the other side of things as you transition into this new normal. Yeah. And when you say you're kind of acting as a therapist, sometimes do you get to use your family and divorce mediator training when you're in that role? 
Absolutely. You know, they teach you so much in mediation about listening. And frankly, we all need to learn how to listen. This is not just a mediator skill. This is not just a lawyer skill. We all could do a better job about listening. And when you actually sit down, put your phone down, put the pen down, you know, eye to eye, really listen to what people have to say, see their body language, see how they respond to things. You can really learn so much from them. And I tell my clients, look, I'm not, I'm not a therapist. I'm not an accountant. I, you know, this is what I do. I'm a family law attorney. Just like, you know, if you had an eye problem, you wouldn't go to an orthopedist. So, you know, I can give you advice. I can steer you in the right direction. I will be honest with you when I tell you that I think you should seek advice from another professional in some arena, but, you know, and there are some times where a client calls you and all they need is that 15 minutes to blow off steam about something that's happened or to express their concerns. And it doesn't mean that they're looking for a resolution right then and there or advice or really anything. They just want an ear. They want someone to listen to them and make them feel that they've been heard. And that's a lot of my job. Yeah. And what I keep hearing is the counsel at law or counselor at law part of being a lawyer, being an attorney that used to be pretty synonymous. Like people would say it all in one, you know, I'm a lawyer, counsel in law, attorney at law. but mm-hmm. now we don't really mention that very often, but lawyers are thought of as being counselors of law. So that whole therapist mediator part fits right in. Well, and I think what's hard is that family law is obviously a very different area of the law than a lot of other areas. And you get to know your clients on a very, very deep level. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you're in, let's say the corporate world, you know, it's much easier to kind of, you know, build that wall up and think that, oh, you're just dealing with money or this big corporation, or there's no like actual real person behind the scenes, but you're dealing with people's lives. You're dealing with people's bank accounts. You're dealing with people's houses. You're dealing with people's children. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very, very different area of the law, but at the same time, it's very gratifying though, to know that you're helping someone shepherd through like such a difficult time. Yeah. So does New Jersey have uncontested divorces? Yes, we do. Okay. We do. So we're not an exclusive no fault state. Mm-hmm. When the laws in New Jersey changed, part of the way that it was changed is that they still retain the causes of action with fault. They're very rarely used. Almost all of the divorces go under irreconcilable differences, which is like our version of a no fault cause of action. Um, yeah. When I was reading about your mediator training, I was curious if there were fault. So Yeah. Okay. But we're like a recent, we're a recent change to that too. Considering that, you know, we're a more liberal state being on like a coast too. We were a pretty late adopter of it. Yeah. Okay. And also how do you deal with the stress of working in family law, whether it's emotional or just mental? It can be taxing at times. It's a learned skill from being in practice. You have to learn how to compartmentalize. Okay. You have, it is so crucial. My first few years in practice were definitely a struggle. I would come home thinking about the cases and talking about the cases and like agonizing over decisions that I had made or didn't make or things I did or didn't do. You just have to somehow develop the skills to leave it in the office. Very rarely there's a client or two that'll come along that just get under your skin and you form a deeper bond with them. And those are the cases that you bring home with you. And there's just, you know, some people you just click with in that way. I have a handful of clients that I've still remained very close with through the years. And I'll always say they'll, they'll text. I, some people are allowed to text me and he'll text me about, you know, something that had happened. And sometimes, you know, when I respond late at night, I'll be thinking, should I have done that? Should I have not done that? But for the most part, you just, you have to leave it in the office somehow or, you know, people's problems become your problems and it's not a healthy situation. You can't get too emotionally invested. Yeah. 
And compartmentalizing is important because it's not saying you're just a bill, you're just a client paying me. It's just saying when I walk out of these doors, I have to leave it in the office, just like you said. So you have you have to. And what's hard is that there's real emergencies in family law. There are days where I have a to-do list that then get completely pushed away because just something else has happened that has to be dealt with. And those are the days that are really hard because you know that you have, you know, eight or 10 people who you promise things to that like on a normal day, you would be able to get done and it's fine. And then something comes along and then, you know, you know that tomorrow you have to call one of those eight people that are still waiting on something, explain to them very nicely that, Unfortunately, something happened in another matter that was more pressing. And then, you know, you have to balance that with, well, isn't my life pressing? Well, of course your life is pressing, but you would expect me that if this was happening in your family, that I would push everyone else aside to deal with that. So, you know, it's often, you know, managing your schedule and not taking on too many things in one day because so that you're able to devote not only the physical time, but the mental time Mm -hmm. that's going to take to deal with certain aspects of certain cases. And when I'm with you or I'm on now basically a Zoom with you or on the phone with you, I want you to know that you have my undivided attention. I'm not, you know, I'm not looking at my emails. I'm not trying to respond to messages coming in. Like that is your time with me. And I expect that from my clients too. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, it's a silver lining of COVID that I've now gotten to meet with my clients much more often. You know, pre-COVID, when people were having to come to my office, it was very difficult. You know, people were taking time off of work, coming during their lunch hours. Now it's so much easier to hop on a, you know, a half an hour Zoom call to talk through a problem. So it's been like, you know, a nicer, a nicer level of, you know, understanding and, you know, partnership together. Yeah, that's nice. I had a day last week where I was on about four and a half hours straight. Oof. And it was one after another, after another, by the time I got home, I swear my eyes were half closed. I just could not look (laughs) at one more screen. Yeah. I completely understand. Mm -hmm. And so you attended Rutgers for law school. Did you take your mediator training at that time when you were in school or was that after? After. So you, so when I was a law clerk, I became a trained mediator for special civil matters, which are like small claims courts. And then once I was practicing for a few years, I was able to do my family law training. So it's a separate course, a lot of hours of dealing with just family law specific disputes. It's eye-opening. And then even after that, um, in order to become a court approved mediator, you then shadow a mentor mediator through actual mediations like that they're doing, which is very interesting. And I think out of anything, you know, the law, when you go before a judge in a family dispute, a judge is bound by whatever the law says. They can only do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. That that's putting people into little pigeonholes. And that just, it's not a one size fits all model for every family. So at least mediation and settlement negotiation allows you to be as creative as you possibly want. And I'll try to tailor a settlement to what's going to work best for that family going forward. Yeah. And so you credit that clerkship with being pivotal to why you decided to practice family law. What was it about that experience that really prompted you to go there? So I clerked for the most phenomenal judge. She was pivotal in terms of not only framing my career, but also showing me how to be a practitioner. She rolled her sleeves up. She got into the cases. She really looked to be solutions driven. I I don't think there I could think of any litigant who would say that they felt that she was unfair. Even if you lost in her courtroom, you always felt like you were heard that you had your day in court. She was beyond amazing. 
she retired not too long ago and she now is one of my partners at my firm. So I get to work with her now as a colleague, which is just the greatest thing that, you know, after a year of, you know, her helping showing me the ropes and like, you know, forming the base for my career, now we're able to be colleagues again, which is really nice. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah, Yeah, it's great. It's really, really great. So she's a wonderful mentor. She is, you know, always my first call if I have a problem and now she's just right down the hallway, which is really nice. Wow. So Nicole, you're a partner at Lindaberry in New Jersey. You call it your practice because you had the family law practice. I have like my own book of business, like my own clients Ah. and things like that. So like, while like I work on like other people's cases, like I'm also responsible for bringing in my own. I got you. Clients. Your own. Yeah. Your own book of business. Like you said. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm like one of a few, (laughs) few attorneys who does family law at Lindaberry. I got you. How many years have you been there? So I came to the firm in 2013, right for my clerkship. So, so in New Jersey, a clerkship is for one year, finite. You have a start date, you have an end date, you can't extend it. It is what it (laughs) is. So, you know, going into your clerkship that at the end of it, you need a job. Like there's no, there's no extensions. No one's going to let you stick around. So um, the job hunt during a clerkship is really competitive. And so the judge that I clerked for, she always said, she's like, you have to treat every day on this job, like a job interview. You don't know who's going to be sitting in my courtroom. You don't know who's going to read an opinion that you write. You don't know who's going to be on the other end of the phone. And so I really, you know, took it to heart. And I actually met one of the men who now my partner while I was clerking, he had several cases before the judge I was clerking for. And he approached me one day and he said he was looking for an associate. Would I want to apply? I said, yeah, of course, no problem. I need to apply. And, you know, a few weeks later, I got hired as his associate. And what he had taught me from the very beginning of it was the importance of business development and that, you know, you need to develop your own set of skills, find, you know, your niche in terms of, you know, what you can offer clients that's distinct and separate from what other people can offer clients and the importance of marketing and developing relationships Mm -hmm. and bringing in business because at the end of the day, lawyers are running businesses, you know, as much as, you know, you want to give free legal advice and you want to help people. And that's a huge reason why a lot of us went into this career at the end of the day, there's bills to pay. There's overhead that has to get paid and you need to make money, which is something that they don't teach you in law school. They don't teach you the business end of being a lawyer in law school. So it's definitely a learned skill and the sooner in your practice that you learn that, the better off you're going to be because it really helps you think about your cases differently. Whether if you know that a case is worth a certain amount of money in terms of like damages, for example, you need to manage that file accordingly. So that way it makes sense for your clients want to pay you to do that kind of work. You also need to learn how to assess cases so that you can manage clients' expectations. Like there is a lot to be said that that should be a skill taught in law school, but there's also a lot to be said that's kind of learned on the job. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, they're coming to you for your professional experience and your professional advice. So they're going to tell you a scenario of what's going on in their life, what happened, and it's up to you to be able to size it up, make them realize the strengths of their cases, the weaknesses of their cases, and ultimately what the success of their case is going to be. There's definitely times where I've had to tell my client, there's no way this is going to happen. And you need to kind of recognize that now. And then there's also times where I'm telling a client, no, we should go for this. Like, this is definitely something in your favor. Like, this is something that's attainable. This is something that is reasonable. It's worth spending the money to try to get that. Um, So it's definitely learn skills. And it's really important to have mentors in this profession. I can't stress that enough. I've been very lucky for the people with the people that I've gotten to work under and now work with um, to have helped, you know, guide me along the way. Yeah. I love that that partner came alongside you and mentored you while also training you. 
right? Usually you hear that story and it's someone who was in a transitional role, but they're actually still there working with you. That's awesome. It's really, it's really great. And it's so nice now that, you know, I've worked on cases with him now for almost a decade. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, we kind of read each other's minds, like kind of one step ahead of each other. And, you know, he's such a great sounding board and such a great support, both professionally and personally. And it's been really nice to always know that you have someone in your corner. Yeah. Not to be afraid. Cause listen, there's things that, you know, when I was early on and I was drafting things and I would show them to him and he'd be like, no, this is not what it's supposed to look like. And not to be afraid to ask the questions. It's only the one thing he's always told me. He said, ask me something 10 times. Don't yes me to death though. So make sure you really understand it. Like ask me to explain it again, ask me to do it again. And like, he's never made himself too busy to answer any question that I've ever had. That's good parenting advice. I'm writing notes over here. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's really good. I I love that treat every day as an interview. Especially when you're in the courthouse, you know, you really don't know who you're going to meet. It was the best year of my career. I say it all the time. I loved it. I loved clerking. It was really just, I got so, so incredibly lucky. So random question. How many law schools are in New Jersey? So Rutgers has two campuses. So I went to Newark, which is like more in like central Northern New Jersey. Mm -hmm. They also have Camden, which is in South Jersey. And then we have Seton Hall. I'm just wondering why it's capped at a year. It's so strict. Um, I was just curious. <laughs> it, it is. And it's very competitive. Okay. Very competitive to get because ultimately a lot of firms still want you to have a clerkship on your mm-hmm. resume before they'll take you. It was nice though, because I got hired. I got hired during November of my third year in law school. So once I knew I had a job, I was like, oh, this is, you know, this yeah, is going to be a great second else. semester. Yeah. Oh yeah. It makes it all worth it. And you're like, okay, I can do this. Yeah. Yes. Totally. So it was a nice little pressure being taken off. Yeah. So at Rutgers, you were the managing editor and you also were a women's right reporter. What was that experience like? So I was the managing editor. So the women's rights law reporter is a journal at Rutgers. And it's a very famous journal because it was actually started by Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she was on faculty at Rutgers. So yes, a little claim to fame there. Um, (laughs) So I was responsible for all the note placements, proofreading, editing, you know, things like that. I worked with the two editors-in-chief at the time. It was a really great experience. I actually, my student note that I wrote was actually published in that journal, which was a great experience. And you know, being able to be on the journal that Ruth Bader Ginsburg started was amazing. My best friend from law school, she was the editor-in-chief when I was the managing editor. And during our third year of law school, Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually spoke in New York City and we got tickets to go and see her speak. And so afterwards I said to, her name is Jamie. I said, Jamie, I said, what are we going to say to her? We were, we had like second row seats and she goes, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to say. I said, well, you're going to have to say something. You got to tell her that we're on like on the journal. And we got close to her, you know, she's probably what probably was like 4'10". Mm-hmm. And we get close to her and Jamie's like, I can't do it. You have to talk. Oh. And, and I don't even, I don't even remember what I said to this day, but she was so gracious of oh. knowing that, you know, like the journal was still continuing and the legacy that she had left at Rutgers was like a nice memory. It was a wonderful experience and just really good, like to improve your writing and your yeah. research and just reading about different topics and, you know, things that you don't necessarily come across every day. That is so cool. Yeah, it was a cool experience. <laughs> you guys are looking up to her, even though she's 410. You're like, yeah. oh my gosh, that's incredible. Yeah, so that was really, it was nice. It was a good experience, a nice memory now. Yeah, that's awesome. This is fun. I feel like hot court. We're like going back and forth. Love it. 
Love it. Give it to me. Um, so prior to law school, you actually worked in corporate America for two years. I did. Yeah. So what industry were you in? I did marketing and PR in the okay. fashion industry. Wow. I did New York Fashion Week. I, you know, got to hang out with a lot of cool people, got to meet a ton of celebrities, got to travel. I was Mm -hmm. in international marketing. So I was managing marketing efforts all around the world. It was beyond my wildest dreams of the first job out of college. I'm still in touch with a lot of my coworkers. It was a really great experience. It really allowed me to grow, taught me about speaking to people of authority. You know, I was dealing with CEOs of companies as, you know, a 22 year old out of college, how to, you know, be authoritative, how to understand that age is not necessarily the end all be all. And that if you have something to say and, you know, you want to sit at the table, you can feel free to speak up. Mm -hmm. It was a truly wonderful experience. The day that I gave my notice, I had started studying for the LSAT about six months before I gave my notice and no one knew I was taking the LSAT and I took it, applied to law school, got in. And I remember saying to my boyfriend at the time, he's now my husband. I was like, okay, I'm going to give my notice on this day. And I came home. He's like, how'd it go? I didn't do it. I chickened out. It went on on for a few days. And finally it was leading up to Memorial Day weekend. And so that morning, it was, you know, the Thursday before the long weekend. He was like, it's now or never, like you have to do it. And I had a meeting on the calendar and I remember going into the conference room and before we like had this call on the books, I remember telling my boss, like, I got to tell you something. And I told him that I was giving my notice. I was going to law school. I was sobbing. It was awful. And then I had to call my other boss who was based in Europe at the time and tell her and I was sobbing. It was, it was quite a, but long-term I knew that I wanted to go into law. I knew I didn't want to go into law right out of college. Like, I'm glad I had that corporate world experience, but it was a really wonderful growth experience. So law was on your mind when you were in college, you went to American university and it was in your mind to do as a future goal. It was, I didn't want to be pre-law. I wanted to see what else was out there. I knew, I knew I didn't have it in me to go straight through for the three years after college. I knew I wanted to, you know, take a break. Mm -hmm. And so I had some great internships in college, nothing ever dealing with law. I took a few law classes, but everything was very focused on marketing and PR and people thought I was crazy for giving up the career. I had a great position. I, you know, had a lot of connections in the industry, could have very easily, you know, made my way around and up the ladder. But long term, it was the right decision. It was a hard decision at the time, but it's a decision that I certainly don't regret. Yeah. But and- my student note though was based on like fashion and things that we did in the fashion industry. So when it got published, it was a little bit of a passion project of mine yeah. because it was, you know, issues that were kind of overlapped both parts of my careers. Yeah, a little full circle moment. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so one of my questions was, how did your family feel about that change in career path? And you kind of explained it. People were shocked. People were really shocked, really, really shocked, but so supportive. My mom in particular always wanted me to have a profession to fall back on, to make sure that, you know, I had career goals. She's a teacher and my parents are actually divorced. And my mom went back to work 
um, after she got divorced, she was lucky that she had a profession to yeah. go back to and that she didn't find herself, you know, having to reinvent herself, you know, midway through what her career would have been. Yeah. And so my family could not have been more supportive of my efforts. My cousin, who is one of my best friends, is also an attorney, a very okay. different kind of attorney than me, though. Um, we do very different things. Yeah, everyone was thrilled. I've actually spoken to a fashion and branding lawyer. You know, oh, really? She works with either corporations or she works on the contracts for influencers and things like that. Yeah. Do you ever do some of that on the side? I would love to, you know, I just have not had the opportunity to, but yeah. I certainly would love to use my experiences. What's hard is that I'm in New Jersey and I'm not in New York. Mm-hmm. So I am licensed to practice in both States. Mm-hmm. I sat for the bar in both States, but because pre COVID it didn't make sense for me to practice in New York and New Jersey because of the travel time to get to courts in New York. Yeah. It wouldn't make sense for me to have to bill a client for two hours of travel just, you know, to get to like Brooklyn when they could hire an attorney that, you know, is based in, you know, one of the boroughs and can get there most easily, much more easily than I could. Yeah. Understandable. So, okay. But I would, I would love to though, if the opportunity presented itself, I would love to. (laughs) Okay. So Nicole, just as a last question, is there anything that you would like to say to the audience about, you know, your career path or a little last word of inspiration? I just think you have to stick to your guns. You have to know what feels right for you and what feels right for you when you're 22 might not necessarily feel right for you when you're 25 or when you're 35 or when you're 37. And there's Mm -hmm. people that even once they get into the practice of law, they find themselves in an area of practice that they can't stand. And you think to yourself, how can I do this for another 20 years? You know, you just have to find the people that are going to support you and that they're going to be your champions. You know, I spoke about obviously some of my mentors and I think more than anything, you need to find people that are going to help guide you and help support you and someone that's going to be in your corner because it's inevitable that you're going to have questions and you're going to have problems and you need someone that you can trust that's going to give you the right advice. Yeah. And you know what I'm starting to learn is that you can make a decision about work and it doesn't have to be the last decision you ever make. Totally work for your career. Totally. And listen, like, you know, our generation, I feel like is the first generation where we're not necessarily following that straight path. Mm -hmm. And it's hard, you know, you come out of high school when you're 18, you go to college and you're expected to figure out who you are. Then, you know, you haven't even been out in the real world. Mm -hmm. You have, you have no idea what's about to happen. And listen, life throws everyone curveballs that, you know, might take us on different paths. And I just about really the people that you meet along the way, more than anything that I feel like really end up like kind of shaping who you are. You know, one of my biggest champions still is when I post things on social media about my new career is my first boss in corporate America. He always will comment. And it's just, it's nice that, you know, you could still have taken a different path when you're thinking about things that people taught you. He's like, it takes longer to climb up the ladder, but you could fall down the ladder twice as fast. So don't forget the people that you had to climb over. Wow. And it's so true because you never know who you're going to need, who you're going to want to reach out to. So it's all about your reputation more than anything. I guess that at the heart of it is that you need to protect your reputation. And especially in private practice, I've had clients where, you know, you want to take on their persona, you want to fight harder, you want to be nastier because, you know, you feel that they've been wronged in some way. And at the end of the day, you know, you're going to finish their case and they're going to walk out your door. And so you need to stay true to who you are so that your reputation is always protected. Yeah. You know, it's kind of the golden rule, right? It's the same thing that, you know, we teach our kids. Mm -hmm. It applies in, you know, adult life too. Yeah, it does. Okay. 
Well, thank you so much, Nicole. This is great. Thanks, Kyla. So nice meeting you. Thank you. You have a great evening. You too. Uh Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to You Are a Lawyer. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a rating, tell a friend about this podcast, and subscribe to the show so that you never miss a new episode. New episodes are released every other Thursday. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Bye.